As we were thinking through ending up this series in the Beatitudes, we talked about early on that sometimes we get confused as to what it means to be happy. You know, we tend to think that happiness comes with good circumstances. And yeah, that, that, that is true. I mean, when you go uh, to, to as a parent, you see your child born, that's a great circumstance. There's happiness and joy there. But where does that happiness and joy go when life throws you a lemon? We all know that there's situations in our lives that, that, you know, it just happens and bad things happen. We have seen it the last week and a half. From all the stuff that happened in Charlottesville and all the, the ramifications since then. Now, I'm not going to make any effort to determine who's right, who's wrong in that whole situation. And I'm not going to even comment on that situation except to say this. The answer to that hatred and that situation there and throughout the United States is not going to be solved by political means and it's not going to be solved on Facebook. Okay, so, so we need to realize and understand that, that there's a God that we're going to talk about this morning who is the God of the peacemakers, but that doesn't mean that peace comes by political party or by Facebook. Peace comes through the Lord Jesus Christ and that's the only way. You know, it's funny, I thought of this... Uh, Friday, and it just popped in my head for some reason, I guess, because I'd been seeing all the, the negativity and all the stuff on Facebook and everything. As I'm sitting Friday with me and three black friends planning ministry together among Iraqi and Rohingya and Somali refugees, I thought, you know, that's where God works. It's not through political parties. It's not through who can yell the loudest or who can protest the best. Okay, so that's my, my only political argument for today, and it's really not a political argument, it's that we need to trust and lean on the one who calls us to be peacemakers, which we will see today. But let's kind of go back here as we look at our mount of uh, the Beatitudes, if you'll pull that up there for me. You know, remember we talked about in Matthew, it talks about that Jesus gave this sermon on the mount, we call it. Now, he didn't call it the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, but he talked about him being on a mountainside. But then the same passage talking about it, Luke says that they were on a plane. And we talked about how it's all context. You know, there were some people who were down in the plane, so when Jesus spoke, he was at the plane. There were some who were up on the mountain with him, so he spoke on the mountain. Now, again, we talked about none of them said it was by the street, you know, by the paved road. That wasn't there at that point in time. But, you know, and sometimes, too, in our minds, we think, the Sermon on the Mount, we think, what, the Appalachians and the Rockies. How did, he, how did he share with all these people from the top of one of these mountains? Well, now, this is, it's a hill, basically. It's not really a mountain. It's a hill. He would have had good acoustics there. He could have shared this message. But as he's sharing this message, a unique thing that Luke tells us that Matthew doesn't is this message comes after he has spent a full night in prayer to choose his 12 disciples. You say, well, I thought he'd already chosen them. Well, if you look in scriptures, it gets a little confusing if we're not sure as to what's going on because there's really several different times when Jesus calls to the disciples. The first calling, he says, come and see. Come and see what we're doing. And that's really only to about five or six of the 12. They kind of follow him for a little while, then they go back to their jobs. We think, you know, they dropped everything then and followed him for the rest of the time. No, they followed him for a little while, then they go back to their jobs. Then about a year later, he calls some more 
who, you know, who do drop their nets and begin to follow him a little bit more fully. But we also see that there's big crowds gathering around him and he's, he's drawing these crowds. And so he's got to figure out who does my father want me to invest time in to be the leaders to take his message from here forward. So he spent the night in prayer. Now you say, well, he was Jesus. He should have known that, right? But he was Jesus as a man. And he chose to spend time and ask the Father who these 12 people would be. Now, if Jesus needs to take that time to find out what God wants, I think we probably need to stop and take some time to figure out what God wants. But he spent the whole night in prayer and God has given to him these 12 men, one of which is going to betray him and one of which that Jesus knows is going to betray him. But he chooses these 12 men, he pulls them together and he begins to teach the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the crowds can hear what he's teaching, these 12, but this is focused on predominantly these 12 men. And he's saying, you need to understand that this is what it means to follow me. This is what it's going to mean for my kingdom, not what you normally see. This is what it's going to mean. As a matter of fact, if you read through the Beatitudes, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, over and over again, you'll hear Jesus say, you have heard it said this, but I say this. And, you know, people say, well, you know, there's other passages that says that Jesus spoke and they recognized that he spoke with authority. Now, let me tell you what that does not mean. Now, we've all known these kind of preachers and, uh, and, and hopefully, you know, I'm not offending anybody, but we've all known the preachers who, sitting and talking to them at the dinner table, they talk to you. But then, when they get up to preach, hallelujah, a voice comes in that becomes a total different voice, and you think, good grief, where'd that come from? That is not Jesus preaching with authority. It was not some booming voice that everybody thought, man, I've never heard that before. What happened was the Pharisees at that time, and the ones who, rabbis who took students and disciples, would say, Shammai says this, or this teacher says this. And the teaching with authority, Jesus says, you've heard them say this and this, but I'm saying, not one of the teachers is saying, I'm saying this is the way it's going to be. And so that's what he's doing here in the Beatitudes. He begins, these are kind of a, an introduction to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. We're just going to read through them. They're not on the screen, but I just want you to just listen to what he says here. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it, for be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Okay, so we talked about early on that Jesus is not saying, and I really believe even this, this translation we have here is a little bit misleading, I hate to say. Because it gives the impression that God will bless you when you do these things. But that's not what these passages are saying. What he's saying is God has already blessed you, therefore live this way. 
God has already, we talked about that first week, that we're talking about our position in Christ. We live from the blessing that he's already given to us, not to get a blessing. And we see it in Romans chapter eight, if you'll pull that up. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? He's given us what we need. He's already blessed us. Second Peter says this, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. Last week, Jason talked about being merciful because of the mercy we have been shown. What does it say in 2 Corinthians? God is, merciful, God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. See, he get, whatever he blesses us with, he chooses, he asks us to live out that blessing that he's already blessed us with. And that's what the Beatitudes are saying. It's not saying, if you do this, then God will bless you. We talked about the first day that that's what's called the debtor's ethic. That says, God did this for, to me, so I owe him. You know, like the old card, you know, like Gilligan's Island, for those who are not to remember. You know, Gilligan saved somebody's life, so now he's indebted to him. He's his butler now, for now on, because he saved his life. It's not that. It's not living saying, because we're never going to be able to repay. If that's the issue, we're going to be in a lot of trouble if we have to try to repay what God's already accomplished for us. He's saying, I'm giving you what you need to do what I've asked you to do. As a matter of fact, what he's teaching to the disciples right here, at this point in time in their lives, they're not at that point. They have not received the Holy Spirit yet. So realistically, us looking back on it, we have a little bit more of an advantage even than they did that first time they heard it. Because we have the Holy Spirit in our lives to give us the power to live the way he's called us to live. So what does he say about how we should live? The first thing he says is, blessed are, I mean, God blesses those whose hearts are pure. Whose hearts are pure. That's a tough one. Because I think if we all were to be honest with ourselves and look at ourselves, we could find areas in our lives where we made decisions and we said things and we did things that didn't really come from a pure heart. We had a selfish motive all along and we were going to do it to get our own way. So we need to check ourselves. Proverbs says this, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. It's not up on the screen, but Jesus told people, it's not what goes into a man that counts, it's what comes out of the man. Now, I remember many years ago when I worked with teenagers, I used to use an illustration. I'd have three balloons, and I'd take the first balloon, and I'd pop it, pow, you know, everybody jumps, and and second balloon, and pop it, pow. But then the third balloon, when I would pick it up, it's obvious that it has water in it. And so I start walking around, talking, and squeezing it, and everybody's getting panicked because they're getting nervous about if that one pops, it's going to be different than just a sound, Right? And my point was, it's not the pressures from the outside that determine whether we're doing what God's called us to do. It's what comes from the inside. And what comes from the inside proves what we're truly made of. So when those pressures come, when those times of stress and, and, and frustration and life's not going the way it should be going, you think, 
Are you living out of a pure heart? Paul says this about a pure heart in Philippians. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. See, we, we have hearts that are pure. And the reason we have hearts that are pure is because of what God has done for us. My heart can't be pure in my own strength. I can't think on things that are lovely and pure and honorable in my own strength. God gives me, God has blessed me to be able to live that way. He blesses those who are pure in heart. And what does it say about them? For they will see God. Hey, that sounds good, doesn't it? If I have a pure heart, then tomorrow during the eclipse, God's gonna show up, man, on the sky, and we'll see a vision of him, and this is gonna be it. I, I don't hold your breath, guys. I mean, he might. I don't wanna discount what God can do. But don't, don't go tomorrow expecting that, all right? It's not saying we'll see God in a vision, though I can tell you people who have. But it's that we will see God at work. We will see and know and understand who he is. We'll begin to see him changing lives and changing even our own lives. Because there are those times when pressures came when we were younger that, that we didn't react the way we needed to react. But now that same pressure comes and we see God working where we go, hey, you know, not to brag on ourselves, but he gave me the strength to deal with it this time because I'm trusting him more and I'm leaning on him more. So blessed are the pure, those who have pure hearts, for they will see God. And he says, God blesses those who work for peace. This is not peacekeeping, but peacemaking. Peacekeeping is, let's keep everybody happy. You know, and even if it's a matter of we just squelch whatever's bothering us and we go our own way, we at least know there was no argument. It doesn't say that. The issue is being able to somehow bring two opposite sides together to bring peace. You know, and it's not easy. There are times when we've got to do it to our own hurt and our own sacrifice because we're trying to bring two people together or two sides of a, an argument together. That's where we're working towards peace among God's people. Robertson McQuilkin says this, to be God-like is to make a sacrificial, loving response to maintain a non-vindictive, non-resistant attitude in all personal relationships when one's own rights are at stake. Now, that's a, that's a big mouthful. What he's saying is we do everything we can to be at peace with those around us and to make peace, even if it means our own reputation is marred and we're on, our own personal best is sacrificed in the process. That's not easy. It's not what we naturally would do, but that's why we are blessed because God has given us the power and the strength to do what's not natural to us, to go beyond the natural, to live the way he's called us to live. Romans twelve eighteen. do all that you can to live at peace with everyone. Another version says, as long as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. Because there's times when you're going to try your best to be at peace with people who just don't want peace. And that's when Jesus says, you, he told the disciples, if they don't want to listen, 
you wipe the dust off your feet and you move on. You know, it sounds bad for us to say that, but Paul tells Titus, you warn someone twice and if they don't listen, you let them go their way. You know, and that's, that's hard to do because we love people, we care for people, we don't want to do that. So he's saying here, blessed are the peacemakers for those who work for peace. Matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians 5, which is not up here, you can look it up later. 2 Corinthians 5 says, we are ambassadors for Christ. And our job as ambassadors is to be reconciling people to God. And as we reconcile people to God, then they are reconciled with one another also. Romans 5 says that for those who have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So we have a responsibility, not just to bring peace among brothers and sisters in Christ, but to seek to find those people who don't have a relationship with Christ to help them to bring peace between them and God. Now, those who are work for peace, they will be called the children of God. God blesses us and, and, and begins to use us. We'll be called the children of God. That's an exciting thing to be thinking about. And then we come to a fun one. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. He goes on to say, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you. That sounds good. But what's the last part? Because you're my followers. It's not because you did something stupid and people are mad at you and and say bad things about you. You go, oh, hey, I should be happy. I'm being persecuted because I did something wrong and everybody's mad at me. I should be persecuted because I'm going to jail because I still, you know. No, that's not persecution, okay? Persecution is not inconvenience. For those who know me well enough to know, and I've got great friends who are high up in management at Walmart, but for those of you who know, I despise going to Walmart. I'll just be honest with you. There's just nothing about it. I almost feel it welling up in me when I'm walking into Walmart to think, I hope I don't kill anybody today. You know, I don't know why. I don't know what it is about. As soon as I go in, I just feel it. Oh, man. And then somebody gets in, you know, and they're moving. And, and, and then you ask somebody, you know, do you have this? I don't know. And you go, ah. You know, and I can tell you right now, if you're ever in Walmart with me, don't go to the same line I go to. Okay, because there can be a line out the back of the store and one with two people. And I'm going to get in the one with two people and I'm still going to be standing there when the people at the back of the store leave. All right, I don't know why, but that's not persecution. That's not my cross to bear. That's where God's saying, you need to grow up. You know, and you need to quit getting so upset about Walmart. Um, and so I'm still working on that. Y'all need to pray for me. But so it's not, persecution is not inconvenience. Persecution is not painful life circumstances. We all face it. You know, because we live in a fallen world, things don't always go the way that we think they should go. And I hate to say it to you, this may burst your bubble, I know. Yeah, I read on Facebook this morning that Dick Gregory died at 84. You know, and then you'll see, probably in a few months, you're gonna see Billy Graham died. He's 98, it's gonna happen at some point in time. Um, you know, and people, all, you see on the news, he was 98 years old. We don't know the cause of death. I do. He was 98. You know, we all going to get there at some point in time. 
And so it's not that these painful life circumstances where someone we love dies or something bad happens or there's a car accident or there's a, an earthquake or there, whatever there is. That's not persecution. That's just life. That's things we got to deal with. And it's also, as I kind of intimated a minute ago, it's also not suffering for wrongs you do. You know, if we have to pay the consequences for our own stupidity, that's not persecution. When I first started coming back on staff with the mission agency I work with right now, several of the men in Texas were a little concerned about me going to Turkey and different countries like that. And so their question was, well, you know, don't you feel unsafe? I said, well, first off, I'm not going in wearing a guns, guts, and glory t-shirt. You know, not going to wear a baseball cap with American flag on it. Those kind of things. I'm not going to do something stupid. You know, but there are times when we do something stupid like that and bad things happen. We go, I oh, see I was persecuted. No, you weren't. You did something stupid. There are people who are martyred. There are people who are standing up for Christ and are persecuted and go to jail and get murdered and those kind of things because of Christ. That is persecution. But if you do something just out there nuts, then that's not persecution. Or if you do something wrong and people respond in a certain way to it, that's not persecution. Now, John Stott had a summary of the Beatitudes. I just want to read to you. It's not going to be on the screen. It's a little long. I just want us to read. I'm going to read it kind of slowly. I want us to listen to what he's saying this says, because he calls this Christ's portrait of a Christian. He says, we see the Christian first alone on his knees before God, acknowledging his spiritual poverty. What we said was he's poor and realizes his need for him. He is bankrupt with nothing to offer, mourning and bewailing his sin. Meek as well because he is willing for other people to think he is what he says to God that he is. And then hungering and thirsting after righteousness, longing to improve, to go, grow in grace and in goodness. And in the next four Beatitudes, we see the Christian with others out in the human community. He is not insulated from the world's sorrows. He is not harsh in himself. He is merciful, compassionate toward others. He is pure in heart, open, transparent, sincere. He plays a constructive role in the community as a peacemaker, even when he is not thanked for his pains. And is opposed, slandered, insulted, persecuted by those who reject Christ. Now, we've been talking for the last three weeks about the Beatitudes. We could have talked for 20 weeks on the Beatitudes. But the thing that I want us to grasp as city church is God has blessed us. Remember, he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Gentleman Stuart Briscoe said this, God never blesses you or teaches you solely for your own benefit. See, it'd be easy to sit around and go, man, this is great. God's blessed me. Oh, I'm so thankful God's given me all these things. But the issue is not that he's given them to me so I can sit and enjoy. Remember, he's given them to me so that I live out what he's called. It's the same thing he was telling the disciples here. This is an introduction to where he later on goes, you've heard this, but I say this. 
You've heard not to kill, but I say don't even hate. You've heard not to commit adultery, I say don't even lust. And so he's beginning to give this lifestyle that makes a difference. And he finishes up right after the, the uh, Beatitudes. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city set on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. That's what the Beatitudes are about. That we are to be salt and light in this community. In February of 2016, when we started this church, we said all along, we are for the city, right? Doesn't mean that we just have a meeting place in the city and we come together and have a good time. It means because God has blessed us, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. God did not spare his own son, but with him gave us everything we need. We're called to be salt and light in this community. You say, well, Wade, God hasn't called me to be a pastor. Praise God. God's called you to work right where you are. Many years ago, my brother and I, there was a young gentleman from France that was, had come to the United States, not as an exchange student, but he'd actually come here with his job to learn English and d- different things. And so he went on this singles retreat with us for a weekend to Panama City Beach, Florida. And so we sat down and talked to him and said, Alan, you know what, where do you stand with the Lord? He said, Look, you know, I'll be honest with you. I'm here because I wanted to go to the beach and I'm hoping to find a girl. Said, well, okay, he's honest. You know, there we go. That, that works. And, uh, and so, as the Lord would have it, it poured down rain that whole weekend. You know, and he's so frustrated. He's wanting to get out on the beach. I mean, it's raining buckets. It's not raining like you can go down and you're just going to get wet anyway. This is, you can't leave the building kind of thing. And so he's so frustrated. So every time we talk to him, he's getting a little bit closer to the Lord, a little bit closer to the Lord, you know, and God's speaking to him. Well, then Sunday morning, which is our last day, and then we're going to pack up and go home, we wake up and it's just beautiful. And Alan's gone to the beach. So we said, well, that's it for Alan. We've lost him. He's not going to listen to us anymore. Um, So he came back a few minutes later. He said, can I talk to the crowd before you, to to the group before you speak? And I thought, okay. (laughs) And so... He said, you know what, guys? I came on this trip to to go to the beach and to find a girl. He said, then God began to speak to my heart. And he said, last night, I prayed, God, if you're real, if if what Wade and John are saying is real, will you let us have a beautiful day tomorrow? And he said, when I woke up this morning and it was beautiful, I ran down on the beach and gave my heart to Christ. (laughs) And you go, Wow. But I say all that because he said, you know, one of the things that was wanting, that was keeping me from giving my heart to Christ is he said, I want to work in management. I don't want to be a pastor. And my brother and I said, that's great. Because I'll be honest with you, I've been in ministry all my life. And you guys who are not in professional ministry, you're not not paid to be good. Um, 
those of you who are, in prof- are not in professional ministry, you have more opportunities to talk to people about Christ than I ever do. I work in a ministry where I sit with eight other people every day who all know Christ and are focused on reaching the world with the gospel. The ministry I work for is right across the street from CIU, which is a Bible college and seminary. I live right next door, and then you go out of my house to the right, and there's nothing till Jenkinsville. So I don't see a lot of lost people. I don't have a lot of opportunities, but you do on a daily basis. And that's exciting because you have more opportunity. Even if I wasn't to be around ministers all the time, if I go out on the golf course and somebody finds out I'm a minister, all of a sudden, the dynamics change. They're not gonna be themselves. Every time they cuss, they're gonna apologize to me. You know, I've always wanted to tell people, you know, I'm not the one that you need to worry about hearing it. But, but then that becomes kind of a self-righteous kind of sounding thing too. So, but it's, God has called us to be salt and light. He's blessed us. He's blessed us when we recognize our need for him. He's blessed us when we hurt. He's blessed us when we're humble. He's blessed us when we hunger and thirst for him. He blesses us when we make peace. He blesses us when we are pure in heart. Why? So that we can be that salt and light. So remember, God has called you where you are. Pastors and missionaries are not the only called people. Everyone is called to be salt and light. As we said before the message, we surrender all. Are we surrendering our all to be salt and light in this community, the way where God has placed us? If not, let's do that now. Let's pray.